chapter 20, verse 36. I'll read through verse 26 of chapter 21. So lengthy passage. Bear with me. Follow on your own Bibles as I read out loud. And when he had said these things, this is Paul, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came to a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go into Jerusalem. But when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And when we finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who had prophesied, and while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Pick up in verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he released one by one, uh, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and as they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there were are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses telling them not to circumcise children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has um, been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This ends the reading of God's word. Praise be to the Lord. You can be seated. Well, it's a long and lengthy passage, and there's a few interesting and odd sections there within that, that long reading that we did. But I, what I want to do this morning, where I want to start, is, is this, is thinking about the narrative of Acts in, in connection to the narrative of our lives. When we think about Acts, and often when we tell our stories of our own lives, it's, we think of the high points, 
that this point of incredible suffering for Paul would be, I got stoned here. Or we think of the, the, the low points or the high points, that mountaintop experience. I mean, that's how people tend to tell their stories. The difficult seasons of suffering and the great seasons of joy. But if you dive into people's stories in more detail, with greater depth, there are two aspects of our lives that take on um, the forefront. They become, these two aspects um, provide the flavor and the detail and the nuance and the color to our lives. And we could say these two aspects are these. What you are doing and who you are doing with, with. What you are doing and who you are doing it with. In the language of Acts... And what we see in this text, there are two themes that almost seem like a square peg and a round hole in their connection with one another. But what we see this morning is the, is the connection between mission or the call. What is God calling me to do? And its relationship to Christian friendships. Now, it has been my experience that it has been in the season of greatest mission that has been around the things that God has called me to do, that that is where I've made my strongest relationships. At all seasons of life, the things that you're most about, that is most likely going to be where your relationships are formed, where they're developed. For example, when I was young, the three things that uh, seemed to dominate my life more than anything else were basketball, the pro-life movement, not by choice because my parents made me, and third, learning to know Jesus, although you should be involved in the pro-life movement, but learning to know Jesus. And for that, my connection was my father. We were constantly around each other. That was what our relationship revolved around, talking about these things. As I went into my teen years, it was the, the fear of facing girls and these things, bizarre things that were suddenly popping out of my face. And I was going, What's, what, what's going on here? And uh, dealing with, uh, for the first time, uncontrollable sin that I couldn't stop. And ha- so then it was like it was good friends. The first time I have accountability partners, my friends John and Jonathan. In my college years, it was learning to lead for the first time, to share my faith to face failure, personal failure, to discern my future direction. For that, I had friends like a guy named Mike Graham and Joshua Johnson and Rob Wyand. Good friends. It was always centered around, my friendships have always been centered around the greatest mission, the things that I was most involved in, the calling in my life. For example, now, the two big callings in my life are pastoring and parenting. And the closest relationships I have are with the elders in this church and those who are in a like season with me in parenting, who are at the same place of parenting as I am. And so the themes that I see in this passage, this long passage, and to weave it together is these two, this connection, the, the friendships, the Christian friendships that we have, and the relationship to mission, what God has called you to do in your life. And so that's what we want to look at together and show how these two are intertwined. So two, two ways I want to state these themes this morning. And the way we're first going to look at this passage is we're going to look at the value of Christian friendships in the context of mission. That their friendships are valuable in the context of mission. Now, I'm going to apologize at the front end. This is one of those sermons where it's like, you know, three points, but every point has like six sub points. And so bear with me this morning. Hopefully the PowerPoint will help. But we're going to move through quickly through a lot of different things. It's going to be kind of buckshot this morning. But the value of Christian friendship in the context of mission Paul's relationships here, I think, show us a lot about Christian relationships, about Christian friendships, in particular in the context of mission. And the first thing I want you to see is that the need for friendship in the midst of mission. That in fact, mission, the more you're involved in a calling, in large things, in great occupations, the more you'll see your need for Christian friendships. There's a reason why when women go from having an identity of their own and getting married and then suddenly having a child and maybe leaving work, that they suddenly, they crave other young moms to be around. 
because they're longing for relationships. They feel the need for those who are involved in the same mission that they are, who can do this hard task along with them. And when you look at, for, at Paul's life, he is, as he engages in missions throughout Acts, is always with friends. He is always taking people with him. He always people, has folks involved with him. This is the same thing that Jesus does when he sends the disciples out. He doesn't send them out one by one. He sends them out as two by two. They're, they're stronger when we have friends together. And what I want you to see is that Paul's occupation here with constantly having people around him and stopping and visiting friends all over the place is not a, um, a personality trait that he's just an extrovert. It's not a weakness. It's not a codependency in Paul either. It's actually a sign of his image bearing. It's less of a sign of weakness and actually a sign more of perfection. You see, you were made for relationships because you were made in the rela- in image of a relational God. God in his very essence is relational. We, we Our doctrine, orthodox doctrine, as we look at the Bible, it says this, that there is one God, but within God there are three persons. And that is a mystery to us, and that blows our categories. But what we see there in the essence of God and who he is, he has always been relational. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always had a relationship with one another. And so when God makes people, he makes them in his image as people who need and long for community. In the garden before the fall, the only thing that was ever described as not being good is the fact that Adam did not have a companion. He didn't have a, a friendship, someone with whom to do life together. You were designed for friendship, for relationship And so what I want you to see is if you are somebody who is a lone ranger, if you say, I don't need friends, that you are not, not only are you not being like the great Paul, but you're not being like Jesus. Jesus, he had at least 12 friends. Now, they weren't any good, but he had friends. And he also comes and says, I am the friend of sinners. To live apart from people is to be something unlike Jesus seeks to be. Let me say this to you, husbands and wives. One of the best things you can do is to give your spouse permission to have a friend. In fact, I talked about this in premarital counseling a lot, in which I say, I advise people, hey, you don't need to be having friends who you just, you know, share all your marital mess with to everybody, but you should give your spouse permission to speak to at least one person about the junk in your marriage. You know why? Because one of the great callings of their life, one of the great missions of their life is to be your spouse. And most days, that ain't easy. And so they need someone with whom they can walk alongside the challenge of being married. If you're single, I would call you into a relationship. Because one of the worst things you can do is separate yourself from people. Isolate yourself. You have to be actively moving towards people. It can also even say this, particularly for those of you that are young adults here. Because the nature of our, our culture, what it allows us to do is we can move a lot. We have the ability to get up and move and go different places a lot. You'll move a lot and shift jobs a lot. And there's going to be this challenge in front of you. You may be at a place for a short period of time, and the temptation is to be, I'm at college. I don't need to really make that, you know, good friends. I'm at Beach Project. I don't need to invest. I'm on a six-month mission trip. I don't need to invest in these relationships too deeply. Absolutely, that's quite the opposite. You need people in those situations. In fact, what we see here when Paul goes to Tyre, he only stays for a week in what's happening. He didn't, he didn't plant that church. This is the first time he meets the people in Tyre. And what happens? They're praying and they're weeping as he's leaving them. Paul makes friends in a week. Invest in relationships even in a short period of time. So we need friendships. And mission actually shows you that you need mission, friendships. But I also say this, is that the establishing of your friendships is as a result of mission. You don't create relationships. The gospel creates relationships. 
In Ephesians, you are called to maintain, not to attain those relationships. God provides those friendships, those relationships for you. And we are established in relationships in connection with having commonality. See, there's a, there's a common theme here with Paul and his relationships. I, I think almost we can see it symbolically. On two of the places, both in Ephesus and Tyre, Paul and his companions, or the people in those cities, they fall on their knees on the beach and they pray. What was that revealing about the commonality in their lives? That they all, they serve one Lord. See, there's nothing more powerful for the establishment for a relationship than to do life with other people who have experienced the grace of the gospel like you've experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. One particular writer puts it this way in describing about the power of friendships is that friendships and relationships are not powerful by ultimately looking at each other, but by looking in the same direction. That you have a common purpose, that friendships will never be very healthy if you're looking at one another and going, I really need a friend, I really need a friend. And that's what, that's what the whole friendship is about, is needing this friendship. That friendships are developed and strengthened as you move in a common direction. And this writer talks about that as you even see people that become more intertwined and intimate. If you were to imagine someone, two people walking away from you, but they're going towards a common horizon, having a common purpose, that those two people become less two and become one. That friendship, that relationship becomes more intertwined. The same thing here. That if you are in Christ Jesus, that there is something powerful that is connecting you to other people. The grace of the Lord and we pray in the same direction. We pray to the same Lord. We've experienced the same grace. And while it is awesome that we come together and we worship each and every week, ultimately I think the place where that is most deeply ingrained in us is the, in the same purpose of mission is that when we get in the trenches together and we are doing hard things together and we're engaged in suffering together and engaged in the gospel and kingdom work together, that that is the place where relationships are most deeply formed within us. Third, I want you to see this about relationships from Paul or Christian friendships is the cultivation of friendship as an aspect of mission. You need to have friends if you're actually gonna be faithful to carry out the Great Commission. And John, Jesus says, they will, he, they will know us by our love for one another. The church should be known. One of the means by which we witness to the world is by the strength of our relationships with one another. Is that they would be loved, known by our love for one another and care for one another. That in the context of friendship, that this is a part of the mission, not separate from it. To be a light to the world. That in a world in which people are isolated and relationships are jacked up and pathological and they're broken, that the church could be a place where we see something different. And it's interesting here, we see actually, we see at least six different ways in which we can maintain or cultivate these relationships. So we see that the gospel establishes that God does the establishing work of our relationships by having a unifying mission, a unifying Lord, a unifying gospel. But then we maintain and we cultivate these relationships in the context of mission. And we see, I'm, I'm going to show you at least six ways in which Paul experiences uh, the, the, the um, cultivation of friendships in this text. Now listen, I'm sure there's more, but six is enough for one day, don't you think? So we'll move through it rather quickly. Six ways, I see it here. First, hospitality. Paul experiences hospitality in his, his relationships. Four times in this passage, Paul stays with someone in Tyre, in Ptolemy, in Caesarea, and then in Jerusalem. You know, it's really irritating for me as a kid. Whenever we went on a vacation, we were never allowed to stay in a hotel, really. We always had to stay with my parents' friends. Now, now as a kid, I knew there was two reasons for this. One is because they're cheap. Now, they said they were being good stewards, but we knew they were cheap. 
because the rest of their life they were cheap. But the second reason is also because they loved connection. They loved getting together with their friends, and they had friends who loved to be with them. And so they would, we would be invited to stay with folks. But what I want you to see here is the Christians of the church here didn't view their homes as their refuge, as we would tend to view our homes here in America. This is how Americans uh, sound. Uh, this is what we like to say, that home is my refuge. It's my safe place. It's a place where I rest so I can go and do things elsewhere. That's what we do to justify our self-indulgence and our people avoidance. The use of your home should be a place of ministry. Hospitality, though, doesn't just simply mean the use of your home. Here's what it means in its heart, is it's your love for strangers. Or in our vernacular, it's welcoming new people. It's saying, I will welcome you into my life. Now, that doesn't just simply mean you have them in your home, but you actually relationally welcome them in, in. If you have a small home, you don't get to be out on this, right? Like some of you are thinking, man, I don't have the big bedroom. I don't have the, the big living room. I don't have the big house. And so, ah, I'm off. I get to skate on hospitality. No, you don't. I'm sorry. Because it doesn't mean have a big home. It has to invite people in. Let's see. When I was in Bosnia, I saw actually Euro- Eastern Europeans do this so well. Because most of where I was in Sarajevo had been a communist country, a socialistic country. And so they had those shoebox apartments that they had lived in for 50 or 60 years. Where everybody, the living room, the kitchen, everything was a bedroom. And so they couldn't have people over. So what would they do for hospitality? They would invite people to dinner at these little tiny restaurants. And they'd show up at 7 o'clock and stay till midnight. And have these long dinners. And you would say, well, that's nice. You would invite people to dinner to go to dinner with you. But I can't pay for people. You don't have to pay for people. Remember, hospitality is inviting them into your life and you being a part of theirs. Everything we should do is to be, be inviting other people in. And this is actually, I think there's a unique challenge for us in a city like Carrollton. In fact, a church like King's Chapel that has such amazing, wonderful people who have been here for a while and have great, deep relationships because one of the challenges is, is this is the kind of place where you come and you say, man, I want to raise my kids here. We're going to do life together for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And this is going to be awesome. I've got my people. And we love it. And we go deep together. And we live life on life together. And that's great. And I've got my four people. But the challenge of that is, is when new people come in, it's very difficult to break into small towns and to smaller churches and to very deep relationships. And therefore, what we have to do is be proactive about creating space to invite people in. In fact, you know, the church, actually, the church here, it's like the way these relationships are developed. It's like rings on a tree here. You can see it every five or ten years, these kind of relationships. Like the Whitakers and the Hildebrands and the Fishers, they kind of raise kids together. They're the same age. And then you have folks like the Hines and the Clarks and the Hogans around that same time period. And then other folks like the Masons and the Peelers and the Teams. And then another generation of the Henleys and the Cousins and the Sorensons. And then you go younger, it's like Clark Juniors and the Stevens and the Joneses. And then now we're having a whole other wave of people having babies and raising kids here. It's like rings on a tree. And yet the difficulty is going to be, man, how do, how do we become a welcoming place? We've got our peeps. That's great. We're like, but we need to be kind of, we need to create some spots. You know, people talk about relationships like the, 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 the connectors on a Lego piece. That you only have so many connectors. That what that means is you're going to have to sacrifice some time sometimes from the, the people with whom you have great deep relationships in order to invite people in. You need to recognize this, that in order to do hospitality, it doesn't require you to be really wealthy or to have a huge home. But we need to recognize that we are relationally wealthy. And there's a responsibility that when you're relationally wealthy, like so many of you are, is that you invite others in. Second, that was the longest one. Second, though, we move through this quickly. Second, forgiveness. You see that Paul goes and stays with Philip the Evangelist. And Philip the Evangelist, if you remember, 
Um, this is unique because, or interesting because Philip the Evangelist was one of the seven original ministers or deacons who was appointed in Acts chapter 6. Now, one of the close friends who would have been worked with Philip in the time would have been a guy named Stephen. Now, if you might recall, what happened to Stephen? Stephen, Acts chapter 7, was taken out and stoned to death. And who, who was overseeing that stoning? Paul was before he became a believer. And so this is some serious relational baggage between Philip and Paul. I mean, you think you might have some problems in here? This is a big deal. And most likely, Philip and Paul probably reconciled after Paul became a believer at some point before Acts 21. But what I want you to see is if there's going to be long-term, healthy Christian relationships and friendships, is forgiveness is inevitably going to be a part of it. You know, one of the reasons why churches, as they get older and the amount of years that a church has been opened is that um, part of the issue is there's too many skeletons in the closet relationally. It becomes an unwelcoming place because no one really wants to be there with the other people because we've had 20 or 30 or 40 years of sinning against one another, and if there's not reconciliation and forgiveness, it becomes stale and cold. The church I was in in Mississippi was like this. It was a tiny little town where everybody had grown up together. They had family feuds going back literally 100 years. Like I was like, what? Where, where, where am I? The Hatfields and the McCoys, and these people were in church together, and because forgiveness and reconciliation was not walked through, there was a tension in that church that made it cold. May that never be here. Third, we see affection. Affection. Tears and hugs and kisses, right? They're weeping. Even those who've only known Paul for like four days are like boo-hooing over Paul leaving, and they're praying for him and have, showing enormous amounts of affection. Now, everyone shows affection in different ways, but let, let's, let me say this, in our relationships, here in the church generally, in our friendships, there should be healthy, appropriate, physical touch. Like, I'm cool with the side hug. We should be good with the side hug, right? We, we, that's the church way to do it, and there's a reason why there's appropriateness there, right? If there's this guy who's walking around and having long, lingering hugs with people, we'll take him to the side and have a conversation with him. But we need to touch each other. Physically, physiologically, we need it to show affection to one another, to be actually be close to each other, that that's okay. There's a pastor I enjoy listening to named Steve Timmis. He's a, a British preacher, and he was preaching, heard him give an account about being in Russia. <laughs> and after the, after the church service, all the men lined up, and they gave him a kiss on the lips. <laughs> he said he barely made it through it between the facial hair and the breath and the lack of deodorant. He was really struggling. But R Romans chapter 12 says to love one another with a brotherly affection. Now, I also want to go further than the physical touch. And that's we need to speak affectionately to one another. There is a guy named Jordan Peterson whose um, books are beginning to explode. In, um, uh, is particularly young men are wanting to read him. But he's kind of a sociologist, psychologist kind of writer. And he's writing and he's tapping into something. Um, and, and one of the things that he is so poignant about doing is speaking encouraging words, um, approving words to men. This is something we desperately need in the church because, at least in my era, it has been this. We, men have been emasculated by secular and Christian feminism. And then what the response to that has been, that in, particularly in the young reform world with guys like me, is our response has been we have guys that get up and yell at you and say you've got to be accountable and tell you that this is what it looks like to be a man and if you don't do it, you're a sissy. And you're saying that and you're yelling to men, most of whom haven't been raised by a father. And the desperate we need, we need, we need men who will look at men and say this, man, this part of your life is broken, but man, I see this in you. You're doing this so well. 
And you were, man, I see the way you love your wife. And I see the way you love your kids and actually speak words of encouragement. And actually, you know, it's weird. In discipleship group, when men, we do that, we almost all start crying. Because we're so unused to it, to actually say affirming words to one another. So that's the third thing. Let's be affectionate. Fourth, in cultivating our relationships, our Christian friendships, is we need to make decisions together. Paul has a word from God. The Spirit says, go to Jerusalem. He feels compelled to go to Jerusalem. And yet, everywhere he goes, people are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And yet, at no point, even though he's going to ignore their advice, at no point does Paul say, no, 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 you don't, just, you don't get to speak into my life. He invites. Dialogue about major life decisions is a way of cultivating and developing relationships. This doesn't mean your friends are necessarily right, but you should invite them in. Paul never, really never moves on as a lone ranger. He's always inviting people into his life. You need good friends. You need good friends. A lot of the ways in which they're developed is when you make major life decisions together. Proverbs says that those who have many counselors are the wise men. People who will gather those around them and they will listen to advice. By the way, and I've said this so many times, but I think it's, it's worth saying again because I had a situation. There is a difference. We would like to be authentic and communicate our wounds and our sorrows to other people. But what I found with my generation in particular is we do not like people to speak into that problem. You see, vulnerability is the difference between authenticity and vulnerability. Authenticity means you tell everybody about your your wounds and your warts. Vulnerability means you let people speak into your wounds and your warts, into your decision-making, and you don't get offended by it. Fifth way to cultivate relationships is prayer. You see, twice at various places, times, they get on the beach, they kneel down, and they, they pray. In particular, you develop and cultivate relationships when you pray in the face of suffering. This is, I mean, I've seen this time and time again. A child who rebels, a child, a wound, a family who's struggling with a kid, uh, singles who are struggling with the fact that they long to be married and they get together and they communicate to one another and they pray through their woundedness and their suffering. When in doubt in relationships, would you pray? Would you pray? And also, let me say this, this slight, uh, slices through and kind of evens the playing field. It's this. I've noticed in, in, in engaging with men of different social abilities, like, you get some guy in a group who's like, man, he's, he's a social superstar, and then you get the, the kind of, the, the dork. And these people have to, like, be accountable to one another. We all love Jesus, that's great, but, I mean, dorks and cool guys, and you know when, when that gets flattened out? Is it prayer? Because it's hard, dork and cool goes away when you're kneeling before the holy gods. It's a, it evens the playing field, and the social world changes when you're praying together. Six, and lastly, steadfastness. Man, there's this interesting thing. All on the way, Paul's going to Jerusalem. Everyone's saying, don't go, Paul. We don't think this is wise. This is not best, yada, yada, yada. But in verse 15, after these days, it says, we got ready and went to, up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bring us to the house of Nason of Cyprus. They disagree with going to Jerusalem as being the wisest thing in Paul's life. And yet he decides to go. And so you know what they say? Okay, we'll go with you. And not only that, Paul says, I'm going to go to prison, maybe, and I might even die. And they're still like, okay, that's cool. We'll go with. You see, what I want you to see is the steadfastness. Even when they don't agree, Paul is not engaging in sinful behavior. See, these people seem to understand the difference between sin and a a wisdom decision. They hear they disagree with maybe what Paul's approach, but they're saying, man, this is not sinful, and we know that your heart is to advance one of the gospel, and so we will go with you. And we will be steadfast and loyal friends through it all. What I want you to see in all this is that you must value relationships if you're going to be, make a dent in regards to the mission that God has for your life. If you don't have relationships, you won't have mission, 
You won't be on mission. And if you even have a mission for a short period of time, you won't be long because it will eventually crush you without other relationships there for you. That's the first theme that I want you to see. The second way I want you to see this theme and how Christian friendships and mission go together is this, is the tension between Christian friendships, of Christian friendships in the context of mission. There are two decisions that Paul has to make that are complicated. This is the kind of the weird stuff that goes on in the text. Two decisions, excuse me, two decisions that he has to make. And there's various perspectives. The first decision is this, whether to go to Jerusalem or not. And there's a debate. There's actually different opinions as to what Paul should do. In verses 19 and 20, verses chapter 19, 21, and chapter 20, verse 22, and to these places, Paul is actually told by the Spirit that he should go to Rome. It says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. He's resolved in the Spirit to move into the Spirit in him. We also see it in verse 22 of chapter 20 that he's compelled. He's convinced by the Spirit that's where he's supposed to go. And yet, in, in Tyre, we have these Christians who come to say, and it says, through the Spirit, they tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then Agabus in Caesarea comes and provides an object lesson. He takes Paul's belt, which is, I mean, you know, we like affection, but come on. And he takes Paul's belt, and he, he wraps his arms around and mimics what it's going to be like to get arrested. And then all the Christians say, don't go. So who's right and who's wrong here? Was Paul disobedient? And actually, some commentators think that Paul is disobedient for going to Jerusalem. I don't think he is, and here's why. Two reasons. First is because of the text, what the text says in chapter 19 and in chapter 20. That there's at least two places where Paul is saying, or Luke is saying that Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit. But second, I also want you to see this, is Luke appears to be making a pattern here, a very clear pattern of showing how Paul is deliberately walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And going towards Jerusalem. You see, Jesus' ministry, there's a certain point in all the Gospels where it's very clear, which Jesus is going to do nothing else. It's like everything centers on getting to Jerusalem as fast as possible. And that appears to be the approach that Paul is taking. But along the way, as Jesus goes to Jerusalem, there's a couple things that he faces. Three times he tells his disciples, for example, in Luke. Three times he says, I have to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And what do we see in this text? Three times... Paul is told, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. Then, Jesus, when he's, as he's facing the suffering, he's moving towards Jerusalem. What do Jesus' disciples think about the suffering that Jesus is going to face? They're no good with it. Peter says, no, you should not go. We're not going to go there. This isn't what we should do. In much the same way, Paul faces his closest friendships and relationships and say, Paul, don't go there. And the last thing we see is this, is that Jesus when he finally comes to the night before his betrayal, or at his betrayal and before he goes to the cross, as we see this account where he goes into the garden and he's laying what this, this mission, this call, should I go to the cross? I don't want to go to the cross. And what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And in chapter 21, verse 14, after Paul says, listen, you're breaking my heart to the people in Tyre and Caesarea, what do they, what do they say? May the will of the Lord be done. That this is the will of the Lord, and Paul is following the direction by following in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, there's debate about this, but here's what I want you to see. The point I want you to get from this decision is this. Is Paul believes he's called by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and other people disagree with him, and he ignores their advice. He takes their advice, but he says, I'm going to continue on. The second decision, though, we see in verses 17 through 26. The second decision is whether to participate in Jewish religious rituals. 
Now, here's the context of this. Paul comes to visit Jerusalem. The, the leaders there are like, hey, Paul, really great to hear you. Uh, great, that missions report about the Gentiles coming to know Jesus, that swell. Hey, we got a problem to deal with. A lot of people have come here from around the world, and they've said, you've been telling Jews not to circumcise their children and telling Jews that it would be wrong for them to follow the law of Moses and to carry on the ritual Jewish uh, sacramental um, ceremonial laws. And this is concerning people because we don't think they're going to accept you and hear the gospel from you if they, if they hear this about you and believe this about you. And so here's what we need you to do. There's four, four guys they're about to have a Nazarite. They're, gonna, they're making a Nazarite vow, and as a part of their Nazarite vow, they're going to shave their head, and they're going to sacrifice a bunch, and they're going to fast, and they're going to pray. And, and not only do we want you to do that as well, we want you to join them, but we want you to pay for all their sacrifices. This way, everyone will know that you're not necessarily against the law of, of Moses. Now, then they go and they quote what they said in Acts chapter 15. If you remember, the watershed moment in all of Acts is that this council of the church in which it is decided that the gospel, in order to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't have to be a Jew. That you're saved by grace through faith alone. You're not saved by grace plus being ethnically and ceremonially Jewish. And so they say, all right, we, we still hold to that, but we need you to do this to, to, to kind of, you know, you know, take care of the ruffled feathers here in Jerusalem. And so what does Paul do? He does it. Here's Paul, the man who says, I'm free to live. I can live apart from the law. I'm not under the law. And yet he does it. But we see his attitude actually stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 and 20, where it says this. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. Here's the application that I want you to see. That he said, in our modern day vernacular, the things that we fight about. Paul said this. If the teetotalers need me to teetotal in order to win a hearing for the gospel, then I will teetotal. Now, the, the weaker brother doesn't get to own me, but for a freedom, I will, my, part of my freedom, I get to choose whether to be a teetotaler or not. And I don't have to be a clown flaunting this freedom in front of others because it might undercut my ability to share the gospel. F.F. F. Bruce, I think, has a, a great line, a commentator on this section says, a truly emancipated spirit such as Paul's is not in bondage to his own emancipation. In other words, his freedom is not the ultimate thing that defines him in this moment and what he does. I had a person actually tell me in this debate about, you know, what, should Christians drink or not drink? He, this guy actually told me, he's like, not only should Christians are, be allowed to drink, but they must drink in order to display their freedom in Christ. I said, I think that's kind of foolish because I think there's situations where maybe you should swallow that. And so what I, what I want you to see here, the point is this. The second decision, Paul decides to listen to the advice. Don't go to Jerusalem. Yeah, I'm going to Jerusalem. Hey, could you do part, take part of these ceremonial laws? Okay, I'll do that. What's the difference? We don't know. And this is how often how life goes. There, there are some themes that I want you to see here, and there's some tensions that we must understand the context of Christian relationships and friendships. There's four tensions I want you to feel from these two accounts coming out of this, kind of the principles to draw from these two decisions. First is this. Sometimes good Christians see the same situation and come to different conclusions. And one is not holy and the other unholy. They just come to different conclusions. Everyone saw the same thing. Everyone saw, Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer, you might die. 
Some people said, okay, that means you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, yeah, I think it means I should go to Jerusalem. Neither was a violation of God's law. Neither of them was a violation of the gospel. You see, what we need to see here is the prediction of the Holy Spirit in all three of these cases does not mean prohibition. This is not a matter of sin or righteousness or unrighteousness, but they come to different conclusions, and that's the reality in the church as well. Good Christians will come to different conclusions. We will look at the same Bible, and sometimes we actually will come down in a different place on infant baptism. We'll have different opinions. But what we see is the Christians, they will sometimes read the same things and hear the same things and come to different conclusions. Tension two. Sometimes, this is all going to be very annoying. I'm sorry. Sometimes, as you listen to others, you should change your path. And sometimes, you should not change your path. <laughs> Here's, we should always listen to those around us. We should live in community and invite others to speak to us. But sometimes... They may say, I don't think it's the Lord's will for you to go in that direction. You might say, I think it is the Lord's will for me to go in that direction. And you got to say, I'm going to do what I think is best here. Um, Sometimes, though, you should submit yourself to them. Notice in one instance, Paul does listen to those around him. And in another instance, he doesn't. You cannot make all of your decisions based on majority opinion. You have to be responsible for your decisions. But neither should you reject the voice of other believers. Let me say this. The history of missions is strewn with wonderful stories of those who were told by the church, you're too small. Your, your life is too good here. This would be foolish for you to go. You're going to, this would be a waste of your gifts and your resources to go there. You're going to burn out. And they went and had inc- unbelievable fruit. For example, there's a great story, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott went to cannibals in the Amazon basin area. And like his ministry lasted like what? A couple hours before he's martyred for the Lord. They had said, don't go, Jim, you're too gifted. You can be such a, a ministry, do great ministry here in America, and you're too gifted for the church. We need you here. He says, no, I'm going to go. Great fruit has been born of that. We don't know, necessarily know. Sometimes the foolishness to be a fool for Christ means you will do something that may look unwise. And yet sometimes you will listen to the practical and common wisdom around you and say, because missions is also strewn with the terrible stories of those whose marriages were destroyed because it couldn't bear up under the weight of the ministry. They, they destroyed missions teams and their families and sometimes their own lives. Here's what I want you to see. Immature Christians only care about what other people think. Oh, please just tell me what to do. I'll just, I'll just do whatever you want me to do. But I also want you to see this. Immature Christians never care about what other people think. You know, the person who thinks, oh, I don't have a, a approval idol. I, I don't care what anybody thinks. Yeah, one, you're a liar. And two, yes, you do. You do care. And you should listen. You should listen to what people think. A mature Christian is willing to live in the tension of sometimes going, man, sometimes people agree with me and sometimes they don't. And that's not always going to be clear as to what I do. Tension three. Sometimes the hard way is the best way. And sometimes the easy way is not the wrong way. Paul is going to Jerusalem no matter how hard it would be. But you remember back a few chapters earlier when he's in Ephesus and there's a great riot and Paul wants to jump into the middle of it and like, I mean, he's like, I'm ready to die. Let me at him, people. I'm going to share the gospel and defend the faith. And they're like, yeah, they're going to tear you from limb to limb. And Paul goes, oh, you're right. I'm going to leave. Sometimes the easy way is the right thing to do. Sometimes the hard way is the right way to do. And there's a tension there. We are not called to have a martyr complex. Simply because one way is harder than the other way doesn't mean it's necessarily the righteous way or God's call for your life. But also, you need to be willing to do the, go the hard way. 
to do the hard thing. We must not over-spiritualize or glamorize suffering and hard things when we must never run from hard things if God calls them and brings them into our life. Fourth tension, last tension. Sometimes the right thing is to be absolutely inflexible, and sometimes the right thing is to bend just a little bit. You know, it's interesting. This is a theological issue, the whole, like, do I take part of the ceremonial law? Paul has gone over all over much of, of, of Asia and Europe and said, you don't have to live under the law. You're free from the law. And suddenly they're going, hey, could you live under the law? He's like, okay. I'll bend. I'm cool. Sometimes we have to be intolerant, brothers and sisters. There are certain things in the scriptures that are so unbelievably clear and so important that we say, we will stand here and we will not be moved. This is a matter of sin and holiness. And I will stand on the place of holiness. I will obey the word of God. But there's other places in which there, there's some flexibility for you. Particularly around these, a lot of these wisdom decisions. For example, you know, one of, some people who are known for not being like, you know, very flexible are the reformers. Uh, you see pictures of John Calvin, pointy nose, weird hat, like really stern. Like this is what we think of the reformers. Kind of like Salem witch trial kind of people. This is what we think, Puritans. and like. But here's what I want you to see. There's an account from Calvin's life where in, in the midst of one of the great debates of the Reformed, it, when the Protestants moved away from the Roman Catholic Church, was one of the things they were most concerned about was worship. They, had this, they developed this thing called the regular principle, and they're like, man, all, unless it is like very clearly stated that you can do this in worship, you don't get to do it. And, and so this is a, they had great concerns about making sure that worship was not complex and they were bringing unbiblical things into scriptures. But then there's this account where some friends of his and some people are forced out of Geneva and they go to Wetzel, to a city called Wetzel in France. And while they're there, they're part of a church that is so Protestant, but they still kind of have some vestiges of the old Roman Catholic ways. Like they, they light a lot of candles in worship. And that totally spooked these people out. They're like, this is, what is this? Lighting the candles. We're going to sit on couches. Like, well, what are we doing here with the candles? And then the, the, the guys who would preach would wear all kinds of weird vestments. And they're like, well, what's the deal with this? This looks so, so Roman. So they, they write to Calvin. And they're thinking about leaving the church. And here's what Calvin says in response to them. He says, we must be on our guard. I think it's going to be on the text screen for you. Not to scandalize those who are already subject to such infirmities. Which we should certainly do by rejecting them from too frivolous motives. And when it would be for us a matter of deep regret if the French church which might be erected there, should be broken up because we would not accommodate ourselves to some ceremonies that do not affect the substance of the faith. For as we have said, it is perfectly lawful for the children of God to submit to many things of which they do not approve. Now the main point of consideration is how far such liberty should extend. Upon this head, let us lay it down as a settled point. In other words, he's saying, now that's a difficult question, but here's the principle. That we ought to make mutual concessions in all ceremonies that do not involve any prejudice to the confession of our faith. And for this end, that the unity of the church be destroyed by our excessive rigor and moroseness. In other words, in worship, don't be a church curmudgeon. And split the church over your inane, silly little things that you are, you, half the time are symbolic. That's what he's communicating to them. Calvin is saying, I don't want these ceremonies to be there. I don't want all this get up and the candles and all this silliness. I think it should be a lot more plain than that. I wouldn't do it if I were there, if I was leading. But you shouldn't leave. And you shouldn't cause major problems over this because the peace and the unity of the church is at stake. And we want a strong church. We need to know when to be absolutely inflexible and when to bend. In the face of such temptations, it's always going to be situational. That's why they're called tensions. So here, you're like, okay, that was the most useless. You, so, you just told me nothing. You just, I just feel agitated inside. Here, here's the, the main thing I want you to see. Here's what runs through. 
Here's what runs through. The core of you evaluate your, your life is this. In both decisions, though, in both decisions, the heart of Paul is the advancement of the gospel. In both decisions. Should I go to Jerusalem or should I not go to Jerusalem? They all say I shouldn't go. Yeah, but I think the gospel is going to be advanced more if I go, so I'm going to go. I get to Jerusalem, should I submit myself to the law or not submit myself to the law? I'm going to submit, submit myself to the law and listen to them because I think that will be, be moved, used for the greatest advancement of the gospel. Is that your question or is it all just your personal preferences? That would be the key question to ask yourself. As you begin to make a decision that I begin to think this way, what will help the advance of the gospel? The second thing, now <laughs> the really difficult part of this is most likely that's not going to provide you any help. All it is is going to increase the stakes. You're like, oh no, now this is a gospel issue. Great. Uh, uh, this decision is so, it's such a big deal. And so then what do you have to do? You have to go James 1.5, where it says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. Wisdom is really hard. Wisdom is hard because it's situational. And let me give you an example. Proverbs 26.4. This is hysterical, really. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Right? Solomon's go all like A-team. Don't pity the fool. Right? That's the first thing. So don't talk to him. He's a moron. Don't answer him. Next verse. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. I mean, is Solomon an idiot? No. He's communicating to you the difficulty of being wise right next to each other. Don't answer fools. You better answer fools. So which is it? Yes? Both? Maybe? And so you must plead for wisdom. This is so annoying, isn't it? And it's annoying to us because, one, we like life to be easy. We like decisions to be easy. And but more than that, more than that. So we, like, we want, hey, would you just give me the answer? I don't really want to think about this. I don't have to pray about this. I don't have to labor over what the right decision is for this. Just give me the answer. I'm not, I can't give you the answer. But I think the heart issue, the reason why we don't like this, is because we simply just don't want to have to trust God. You see, the wisdom world and the situation world, It's gray. And you're like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I got to make a decision and trust that the Lord is going to provide for me either way. God is not a magic eight ball that you shake up and out pops an answer for everything in life. That's not how it works. You see, God actually wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want to be an automaton computer who just spits out answers. He's not Siri. He, he, he longs for a relationship, which means you have to get on your knees and you have to talk to him and begin to know the heart of God. And that's how you'll begin to discern more and more. You have to learn to listen to the voice of the Spirit in your life to just help you discern the will of God in your life. Now listen, the Bible is always the will of God. So if you read, it says, don't have sex outside of marriage. Guess what? There ain't no moving around on that one. That ain't the debate. It's whether I move into, if I live in Atlanta or Carrollton. Do I go to New Zealand or Australia? No one even knows the difference between the two countries, so just go where you want to go, but sense the Spirit's call in your life. But here's what I want you to say. God wants us to learn to trust him. And for some of you, what I, this today, this tension that I've just communicated, it's not a mere annoyance. It literally is hurting you inside. That you have a big decision in front of you, and you're going, man, I, I'm, I am breaking, I am so anxious and stressed about this decision. I, like, I literally, I feel like I'm just going to burst. This tension is going to rip me apart. And what I'd say is this to you, is you need to go back to the gospel and appropriate it again. Because the reason, most likely, why you're that tense is there is something about this decision. You're like, what if I get it wrong? You have some belief that God is going to leave you. But here's, here's what the gospel promises. You see, the gospel has given us a great friend. And when Jesus came to earth, and he came after you, not only when you were just not being wise, 
but you, when you were his enemy. And he didn't just pursue you to Atlanta as if that was a bad idea. He, he's pursued you in the death. And he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And he was the friend who pursued you into that place. And so you think if you make a, an un- unwise decision, and there's some consequences. Well, he's not going with me. No, the cross was the purchase by which he can say, I will never leave you or forsake you, even if you start screwing around with your decision-making. I'm with you. I am here for you. And so some of you need to come back to that place. Make a decision in the context of the security that my God has died so that he might be the friend who never, ever leaves me no matter what. And maybe that will relieve, maybe that will cut some of the tension. It may, you may still not know what to do, but at least you can sleep again at night, knowing that whether I go here or there, whether I make this decision or that call, he goes with me and he goes before me. Let's pray. Gracious God, we, we, are, um, we are agitated and we, well, we, we, we really do prefer to make things black and white and we hate the gray. Um, Gracious God, I pray that you would give folks in this room the security and the assurance of the gospel promise of the friendship of Jesus. While they were sinners, he came to be their friend. And that truth would give them the security to make the tough decisions. That truth would give them the security to allow other people who may even disagree with them to speak into their lives. That truth would give them the security to wait while they're not sure about the decision to wait for your spirit's voice. And God, I pray that the friendship of Jesus would beckon us into a deeper relationship where we can more clearly hear your spirit, where we can more clearly and more rightly be attuned to the, to the call of God and the advance of the gospel in our lives. So God, you're safe. You're a good friend. So would we come to you now? Would we repent of our fear, of our pettiness, of our laziness, and of our lack of trust, and lean into your bosom, the good friend who loves us well and goes with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.